everybody, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, a DC Comics completionist podcast. Uh, the only podcast that I know of that is going issue by issue from Crisis on Infinite Earths number one towards the present, an issue at a time. And, uh, and we're back. It's another Friday. It's f- feeling great. Always, you know, TGIF. Am I right? Haha. <laughs> But, um, but, uh, yeah, we're back, uh, for another great episode of some 80s comics, and, uh, let's talk about the comics that we're going to be covering this week. Uh, we're going to be covering Batman and the Outsiders, number 20, Blue Devil, number 11, and Green Lantern, number 187. Uh, so, before we get into that, Let's set the scene as we do every single week, every single episode with what's going on in the real world when these issues are being released and out on newsstands. Uh, A little bit shorter uh, set the scene this time because not a lot of stuff's going on at the moment. Um, So in January of 1985, in late January 1985, not a lot's going on uh, that I can find uh, easily. Uh, January 17th, 1985, Cyclone Eric made landfall in Fiji, causing wind damage and extensive flooding. About 30,000 people were made homeless, and uh, Cyclone Eric uh, caused $40 million in damage and took 25 lives. So, not great, but living on an island. So, But uh, every other time when there's not a hurricane or a cyclone, Fiji's great. Never been, personally, but I bet it's great. January 18th through the 22nd is uh, one of the most intense Arctic outbreaks of the 20th century. Uh, Extremely cold temperatures affected every state east of the Rockies, with three new state lows established. Negative 34 degrees at Mount Mitchell, North Carolina. Negative 19 degrees at Caesars Head, South Carolina. And negative 30 degrees at Mountain Lake, Virginia. Now, I recently lived in the South, in South Carolina specifically. And I will tell you, my entire time that I was there, I never I never took out my winter coat. I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally. Winter coats are a mainstay for what seems like a good portion of the year, at least... At least almost half of the year, uh, you could probably wear a winter coat uh, and be okay. So for their temperatures to get down to the negatives at all, and this is this is likely with wind chill as well, but still, uh, that's insane. That's some that's some pretty cold weather uh, down there. I'm assuming a lot of pipes froze and uh, maybe a lot of pipes burst. So uh, because they're just houses are built different down there because of the weather. Uh, so that's that's all the big exciting things. Sorry it wasn't longer and there wasn't more little tidbits in there, but like I said, couldn't find a lot of stuff that that really really mattered at all. I guess I could have talked about the the Wilmington no yeah I could have talked about the Wilmington Vermont elections uh, where a libertarian ran against Bernie Sanders. I guess I could have talked about that, but uh, whatever. Uh, let's get into the issues, and let's get into the first one, Batman and the Outsiders, number 21, uh, released January 17th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985, and we've got some debuts, obviously, because this is the first time we're ever seeing the Outsiders, um, but we're going to do something a little bit new with our debuts, so obviously we have debuts in 
comics history and we have debuts to the podcast, which happens more on this show than uh, Monday show. But when we were talking about debuts to the podcast, I thought it would be good and interesting to also say when they debuted in reality in, in into DC Comics. Because, uh, I mean, I could tell you that this is the first time we're seeing Black Lightning, but wouldn't you also like to know that uh, Black Lightning debuted for the first time in Black Lightning number one on January 4th, 1977? That's pretty cool. Geoforce, uh, which is Terra... Markov's brother uh, has similar powers. Uh, I should say Black Lightning is Jefferson Pierce. Uh, he has a TV show. I watched the first season and maybe part of the second, and then I kind of fell off. CW shows can get a little bit iffy, but of them, I hear that one's probably the best. Uh, Geoforce debuted in Brave and the Bold number 200 in April 21st, 1983, so just a couple year and a half-ish uh, before this comic comes out, uh, which is around, which is around the time that Batman, I guess, leaves, or probably near when Batman leaves the Justice League and forms the Outsiders, which is the reason the team exists. Uh, Katana. Oh, sorry, nope, skipped. Uh, Halo, who is a sort of mysterious light-based superhero, she appears on and Geoforce and Black Lightning. They all appear on Young Justice. Uh, Outsiders, the Outsiders season of Young Justice, a great, great television show that you should check out if you haven't already. Uh, she also debuted in Brave and the Bold number 200. Katana, also debuting in Brave and the Bold number 200. Uh, sword-wheeling Japanese woman uh, whose sword takes the souls of those it kills. She appeared in the first Suicide Squad movie. That wasn't very good, and she didn't really say a lot, but her actress is very good at acting. Metamorpho, who debuted in Brave and the Bold number 57, so quite a while ago, in October 29th, 1964. Uh, what seems to keep happening on this show, we get real mainstays of the DC Universe debuting in this show rather than in their first debut, and that's going to happen this uh, episode with Alfred Pennyworth, Bruce Wayne's butler, uh, father figure, tech guy in the in the Batcave on the ones and twos. He debuted in Batman number eighty one, December second, nineteen fifty three. We have uh, some villains. We have Tobias Whale, uh, who uh, you'll know from the Black Lightning television show. He looks much different in this one, in the comic book form. Uh, he debuted in Black Lightning number one, January 4th, 1977. We have the 100, which is a, a, a group of criminals. They debuted in Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, uh, in, on August 13th, 1970. And finally, we have Dr. Moon, who debuted in Batman number 240 on January 18th, 1974. So hopefully you found that interesting. I always find it interesting to see how long... Uh, characters have been around, uh, especially if it's a ca character I've never heard of before, like, like you know, uh, Halo. I w I didn't know about Halo or Geoforce to a lesser extent until the Young Justice television show. So, you know, they've been around for a while at this point. So, I mean, going on forty years for all of them, uh, and Katana forty years old. So that's cool. Already happened. Their birthdays already happened on April twenty first. But it's very cool. You know. So, 
let's get into the production side of this issue. Uh, this issue was written by Mike W. Barr. Uh, the artist on this ep uh, issue was Jim Aparo, and the colorist was Nancy Houlihan. Uh, only three, not a big team. Uh, probably uh, Jim Aparo doing a lot of the heavy lifting there in terms of the actual drawing and lettering and stuff like that. Uh, but let's get into this issue. Let's talk about the cover, uh, which we'll be posting on Instagram uh, after this episode comes out. So it starts out, It's bat the title, it has a Batman symbol, of course, because every Batman title has to have a Batman on it. Uh, it's Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, and it says, The Truth About Halo, Part 2. Part 1 occurred in issue 16 of this series. And basically, the entire time that Halo's been around, she's had no idea who she was. She has amnesia, uh, very similar to in the, in the Young Justice cartoon. And Batman, to rectify that, sent Jason Bard, a private eye at this time, not uh, a police officer in, in the Gotham police force, uh, to track down Halo's hometown uh, and parents, and he discovered that she lives in Arlington, Missouri. So this is part two of this. Weirdly, uh, there were f obviously four, three or three issues in between part one and part two. Well, that's because Metamorpho died, and so they had to do some Egyptian adventures to bring him back to life. But uh, we'll talk about the rest of the cover. It, it has uh, Halo, who is a blonde woman with uh, sort of a red, yellow, and blue highlight strip in her hair. She's got a black costume with, you know, parts of it are red, parts of it are yellow, parts of it are blue. And she's being attacked by a woman in a... Uh, she, uh, she's got thigh-high boots and um, a, a deep, deep V neckline on a sort of... Uh, leotard and she has this what looks like electrified whip and it says this is cyanide she killed halo once and she's back to do the job right uh, and then floating above all of it are the other members of the outsiders katana geoforce batman metamorpho and black lightning and they're all looking either shocked or angry and uh it's it's very it's very clean very nice cover it, it kind of yeah it, it, it's it's nice i always like a nice cover you know so let's get into the, the, the meat of the issue, the inside. The first page starts off with a woman that uh, is not recognizable to me. I have not read any of the other issues of this comic. Uh, I just did some background research on it. Uh, and she is, looks like, walking to the bus depot in Arlington, Missouri, which is, if you remember what I said, uh, the place where... Uh, Violet Harper, Halo, uh, her parents live and where she is now after no longer being a superhero. Uh, because when they found her parents, she decided to stay there and, and, and just have a normal life again. It's 729. Uh, this woman opens up a bag. It's 729 because she looks at her watch. She opens up her bag and inside is a gun and what looks like cash, cash money, legal tender. And uh, a woman comes up behind her, a woman dressed like Humphrey Bogart. She's wearing a fedora and a trench coat and smoking a cigarette like Humphrey Bogart would do. And she asks the question, Jane Denninger or Denninger? I don't know. And the woman uh, with the watch and the gun says, yes, 
and uh, the woman in the trench coat says, right this way. And she ushers, or she gestures towards a stretch of limousine uh, uh, parked on the snowy street. Inside, once they get inside, uh, the the woman, uh, Jane Denninger, Denninger, D-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R, however you want to say it. I'm going to go with Denninger, like Derringer, pistol. Uh, she gasps, and she says, are, are you? And uh, a man off screen says, your host, Miss Denninger. But before I introduce myself, may I present my aide de camp, her only cognate cognomen is cyanide which basically means her only name is cyanide and the that's the woman in the trench coat and the, and the fedora she takes it off and reveals herself to be the woman from the cover that was torturing halo and we then see that the person in the other side of the limousine is tobias whale he is a very, very large Kingpin-like man. If you know who Kingpin is from Marvel Comics, he looks a lot like him, except instead of being just a regular large bald man, uh, Tobias Whale is a large bald man, but he is, like, white, like whale skin white, uh, and he has a little ring on his finger that is a whale. It's kind of funny. And he's huge. He's gigantic. The tea set sitting next to him looks like a, a toy uh, in comparison, this must be a retrofitted limousine with uh, really powerful suspension. Um, and he asks, he asks if if uh, Miss Denninger would like some demitas. Uh, so uh, that's a type of, I believe, tea. No, coffee. I'm not a connoisseur. I don't drink coffee. Uh, and we learn that this uh, issue is called Death and Remembrance. I've been forgetting to say the actual titles because these actually have titles. Once we get you know to a more modern comic book era in the in the golden age they just said yeah doesn't need a title but uh they have a title so that's it's death and remembrance she says no thank you and uh he says you know that the beans are flown in fresh from columbia every day so it is a type of coffee and then he uh tells Sina that they will be leaving now and she asks if she should notify the others and he says yes um, they are to meet us at the Harper household, which is the home of Halo's parents. And her parents seem to be a, a loving couple. Uh, the mom is cooking bacon in the morning, and the husband comes up behind her and tickles her. Her name is Margaret, and his name is Sam. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's cute old people couples who are, like, really in love. You've, we've all seen it. You know, they're, very, they're weirdly touchy-feely with each other. Um, like, gross, old people, knock it off. Uh, she says, stop it, Sam, you'll wake Violet. And he says, she's still asleep. And she says, it is Saturday, you know. And he says, what are you doing up so early? The, the, the lumber yard is closed today. And he says, oh, I got paperwork to do. And then there's suddenly a uh, the ringing of the doorbell. And they're like, what? The milkman's already been here. Because apparently milkmen were still a thing in 1985. I didn't think it would it happened that late. Maybe it's only in certain areas where it still makes sense for a milkman to exist. But I just felt like 1985. And, and I mean, 1985 was 40 years ago. So um, things, I guess, have changed uh, quite a bit. Uh, but there was no milkman when I was growing up. And I grew up in the, in the 90s. So uh, must have quickly... Uh, Go, fell out of fashion after this but they answer the door and it's a bunch of people dressed like humphrey bogart they're all wearing trench coats and fedoras cyanide is there she's back in her 
her red trench coat and fedora. Uh, they, you know, they say, Miss Har- Mr. Harper, and he says, yeah, what can I do for you? And, and Cyanide says, you can stay out of our way. And one of the men punches him in the, in the stomach, and Margaret comes out and is like, who is it, Sam? And she's like, what? And everyone, like, these people have guns, and that's scary. They ask where her daughter is. And she's like, well, Violet, she said she was through with people like you. You know, she's given up the superhero life. And she says that she's upstairs. Uh, and we then cut into uh, a dream uh, that that Violet is having. And she says, please don't hurt her. Oh, no, that's sorry. That's Margaret says, please don't hurt her. We then cut to a dream that uh, Violet is ha- having. She is in her Halo costume. And someone is stealing the face off of her face, uh, which I guess kind of is a, a symbolism, if you want to read into it, is the fact that she doesn't really know her own identity because of she has amnesia. Uh, she doesn't remember who she was in her past life. All she remembers is she woke up in Markovia one day and she was uh, Halo. That's basically all she remembers. Uh, but now she knows who her parents are and also who her, what her name is. But that's it. Uh, so she's woken up. She comes out of her dream, and she's you know her eyes are still closed, and she clings to who she thinks is her, uh, who is Tatsu, who is Katana. But uh, obviously, because they were roommates. But uh, obviously, it's not because she's not, you know, there anymore. She's at her parents' house, uh, and she clings to instead, and clings to Cyanide, and Cyanide wants her to answer some questions. And before uh, before Violet can turn into Halo, she has to concentrate and kind of, like, activate it. Before she can do that, Cyanide uses her whip uh, and electrifies it and sort of knocks her out. And Cyanide says, don't whine so, Violet, the whip's only set for stun. When we met in Markovia, I killed you. Bum, bum, bum. What? But she's alive. You're bad at your job, Cyanide. Uh, we then cut to Harper Lumberyard. Uh, a cargo van and Tobias Whale's limousine are parked outside. And Tobias Whale is talking to a man uh, who is administering some sort of uh, chemicals, drugs, to the uh, just-waking-up Violet. Uh, we learned this is Dr. Moon, um, a bad a bad doctor. Uh, don't work for evil people if you're a good doctor, Dr. Moon. So he's giving Violet a... a a mild sedative combined with a truth serum so that they can determine if she's telling the truth or not. So we, we then find out why Tobias Whale and, and the 100, uh, which is the group that works for Tobias Whale and Cyanide is a member of, uh, we learn why they've targeted Violet Harper, and it is because of a formula that prior to her amnesia, and becoming Halo, she stole. Uh, and they say that she'll produce this formula or the, her parents will suffer. And this is, we then sort of get a sort of um, whispered conversation between Margaret and Sam. And Sam says she's never cared a lick about us before, before Margaret. No reason why she should now. And Margaret says, quiet, Sam. So this is kind of sort of some information we're gleaning about who Violet was before she got amnesia and became Halo. Um, so they ask her again, you know, what is the formula? Tell me the formula. And they threaten her with poison darts uh, to sort of kill her, I guess, which will 
It doesn't make any sense. If she has the information you want, you can't kill her. So that's dumb. Dumb thing to say. Cyanide. Dumb thing to say. Uh, she is drugged and in too weak to become Halo. So instead, Violet reaches for her necklace, which she, when folded shut, uh, or clicked together, it's a sort of, it's sort of a folded circle. Uh, once it happens, it activates an alarm, an outsider's alarm. Uh, and then she says to Mr. Whale, Tobias Whale, that she'll tell him everything that she knows in order to stall for time. We then cut to the uh, Wayne Mansion, Wayne Manor, uh, where Bruce is down there just getting his reps in, doing some barbell uh, curls, bicep curls. Gotta have them sick guns to be Batman. And he is doing 205, 206, 207. He does 210 reps. That's a lot of reps. That's way, that's wicked hypertrophy, hypertrophy. It's a hard word to say. Uh, when Alfred comes down and says one of the outsiders' emergency alarms is sounding, and uh, you know, obviously Bruce asks Alfred to identify and trace it, and Alfred, being the great butler that he is, uh, he says that he's already done that, and it is Halo's frequency coming from Arlington, Missouri. Bruce then calls Geoforce, Brion Markov, uh, at Gotham General Hospital, is where he's at at the moment. Uh, he calls him. I don't know how he knows where he's at phone-wise because he calls him what, on what looks to be a payphone. Uh, so that's, I mean, he's Batman. So I guess Batman does know where you're at at all times and knows what you're doing. He's like Santa that way. Uh, so Brion says that he can fly there in two hours using his powers, obviously. He then goes and says goodbye to this woman named Denise. Uh, and he says that the consulate... Uh, needs him. I'm assuming the consulate of Markovia since he is royalty. And uh, she says, oh, okay, will I see you later? And he says, I hope so. I'll call at least. I'm glad you're feeling better. So this woman is in the hospital. And she says, me too. Bye. And then she thinks in her head as he leaves, how can I get through to him? He saved my life, but he doesn't even know I'm alive. Not that, not the way I want. And so she's a little bit infatuated with Brion because he saved her life, which happens happens a lot. It happens in, in television shows all the time. So we then see uh, Brion in a closet, it looks like, putting on his Geoforce costume. I think his costume's pretty good. Uh, it is it is green and yellow, which are not great. Uh, they're very Green Bay Packers cost colors, uh, if you're into sports or if you're into football. I'm not. I just, I just know that those are the colors of Green Bay Packers. But I think it's sort of uh, Kid Flash half or like half cowl because it's it, it covers his eyes and his cheeks and his neck and the back of his head but it doesn't cover, cover his hair so you can see that he is a, a well either blonde or a redhead uh, it's it's 1980s comics so blonde people sometimes strawberry blonde strawberry blonde strawberry blonde uh or a redhead no, no idea we then get um scenes of the other outsiders uh when they're sort of communicators beeping their alerts kind of beeping we see metamorpho in his human disguise uh, because obviously his skin is all you know is made of all these different materials so he has to disguise himself as human we see katana and she is feeding a kitty we see um oh my gosh i'm blanking on um black lightning's name jefferson pierce who did it 
Uh, and he's reading Hamlet because he is a, a big nerd in real life uh, because he is a, a teacher and a principal. Uh, and then uh, we cut back to the lumberyard where uh, Halo is finishing telling them everything, which is that she doesn't remember anything since before waking up in Markovia. And, you know, they ask, well, how'd you get back to America? And she says, well, come, some people came. She came back with some people she met. They hired detectives to find out who I was. And that's everything. And they think she's lying and they're going to hurt her parents. Uh, but she says, it's not fair. They should hurt for what I did. Hurt me if you have to, but it won't do you any good. I can't remember. And then we get another whispered conversation between Sam and Margaret that Sa- Margaret's saying, you see, Sam, she does care about us. And Sam says, maybe she has changed after all. So Violet apparently was a terrible person before she ended up in Markovia with amnesia, which, I mean, can happen. There's, you know, the the psychological theory of nature versus nurture. Um, and, I mean, traumatic brain injuries can affect people's uh, personalities. There's the famous story of the railroad worker whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, but he was a, you know, normal average guy, and he got a railroad spike through his head, and after that he was mean and irritable. And I mean, I would too if I had a railroad spike in my head, but uh, it affected a part of his brain, and that's why his entire personality changed. So head traumas, you know can change personalities. So Tobias Whale says to Dr. Moon, she sounds sincere, Dr. Moon. And he says, quite, if she is, my treatments may prove more effective than your threats. And Tobias Whale says, proceed. They then, or Dr. Moon then hooks uh, Violet up to a sort of uh, something similar to an EKG. He is checking her brain for damaged functions uh, in her her cerebral activity in her brain waves and uh, once they get it hooked up he says her brain reading it's like none other i've ever seen and tobias will asks if he detects any damage and dr moon says perhaps she may not be feigning her perhaps she may not be feigning her memory loss i suggest you refresh her memory of the recent past so Tobias Well then brings in Miss Denninger, who clearly is connected in some way with, with Violet Harper, because otherwise why would they have grabbed her and brought her here? Tobias Well asks her to remind Miss Harper how her involvement with your brother began. And uh, Miss Denninger says, I'll never forget, that's for sure. So her and her brother moved to town. Uh, the exact day uh, that they moved to town, Violet caught her brother Mark's caught Jane Denninger's brother Mark hit caught his eye and apparently it wasn't long before Violet made him forget all about his sister Jane uh altogether uh their parents had just recently died and he was the only family that she had left so I mean we all know people like that right they get into a relationship and suddenly they forget that everybody else exists I I know people like that it's it's unfortunate, but, I mean, that's the kind of people they are. So, Mark is clearly one of those kinds of people. Uh, so, Mark said uh, what Violet wanted most was to get out of this one-horse town. Can relate. That's all I wanted to do uh, when I growing up in, in the Midwest. Um, and then a few months ago, they did. So, Violet has not been an amnesiac very long. Uh, 
So they left town uh, on his motorcycle, on his steel horse, when they came upon an accident around on, on alongside old Route 44. The driver was still alive in the truck, but he was hurt. Uh, as Mark was trying to, you know, get the door open, uh, Violet was opening this man's briefcase and reading the folder inside. And once she read what was in this folder, she has she gives Mark the evilest smile I've ever seen and pulls him away from the car, which then explodes. So they're fine. Mark and Mike and Violet are fine, but Mark told Jane that he never forgot the screams of the man in the car or the smile on your face as you watched. So pre-amnesia Violet was a real sociopath. Uh, and obviously Violet is, or current Violet is shocked. She is appalled. She said she'd never do that. She'd never leave a man to die like that ever. And Jane says, you did, honey. And, she, and Violet's like, I, I did? Huh? And we then cut to just a, a quick little snippet of Geoforce flying through the sky, just with some whoosh, a whoosh sound effect next to him. Uh, if I ever get a soundboard, I'm just going to have whooshes on there and blams and splats and kapows. Just going to gonna go crazy. But uh, I digress back to the story. We cut then back to the lumberyard where uh, Dr. Whale... Or sorry, not Dr. Whale. Tobias Whale takes over the story from that point on. Uh, his office received a call from Mark Denninger uh, alerting Tobias Whale to the fact that he possessed the formula that Tobias Whale had commissioned. Uh, this formula is for a drug that could be manipulated, manufactured cheaply with relative simplicity and whose addictive properties made heroin look like talcum powder, which wowzers. Because, I mean, heroin is addictive. Uh, so, that's that's crazy. And, I mean, obviously, Tobias Whale's a criminal, so it's not shocking. They'd be like, I want to I wanna, I wanna, wanna make crack times two. I want to make crack version 2.0. Uh, so, that's, that's good. Uh, Mark Denninger apparently offered to sell it back to Tobias Whale. Um, Tobias Whale doesn't deal with extortionists, so he vowed to find him. And um, apparently he was close, but uh, Mark Denninger flew away on a plane before Tobias Whale could get him. They then did some digging that Mr. Denninger had traveled to Europe on forged passports accompanied by a young woman, Violet Harper. Uh, Tobias Whale then charged cyanide with finding them and uh, taking care of them, getting the formula back and, and killing them likely. Uh, we then cut to the, uh, I guess, bat plane, uh, the long distance bat plane, not the sort of flying around Gotham City bat plane. It looks more like a private jet, but it has bat sort of like accents on it. Uh, and it says uh, they'll be landing in 15 minutes. Get ready. And uh, I think Katana says, I'm always ready, Batman. And if Gabrielle is hurt, the perpetrator will be very sorry. I was very confused about this. But apparently Gabrielle is the name that either... Halo came up with herself or someone gave her to sort of give her a regular civilian identity and not just being called Halo all the time. Um, we then uh, have Katana and she's thinking to herself, I hope to spare myself the pain of seeing Gabrielle again, but I will not abandon her. If my lot is to save her so she can return to the arms of strangers, I will. And that's, that's really nice. That's a good friend. 
Um, and I don't think that Katana's feelings are, are more than friendship because obviously she was married and her husband's soul is in her sword. Not to say that she couldn't be bisexual, but uh, I think it's just really, really close friendship. Uh, but it could be more. And if it is, that's fine too. I, I don't really care. Uh, we then cut back to Cyanide, and she says, You and your boyfriend must have decided to see how much the European syndicates would offer you for Mr. Whale's formula. Because Cyanide picked up the trail in Paris. Uh, she loves dressing like Humphrey Bogart. We see a scene of her dressing like Humphrey Bogart. Uh, apparently, she just missed Violet, but Denninger was in this, wherever they were staying, sort of slowly dying, or quickly dying, because uh, he'd been injected with an overdose of some kind of drug, and so he was dying, which is not great. Uh, he told Cyanide that it was Violet who killed him, trying to make it look like an accidental overdose, which, hey, that's smart if you're going to kill anyone. Uh, he said that he loved her and followed her into this mess, and then he died, alone and afraid. Violet uh, interjects and says that she doesn't believe any of this and she won't believe it. And Cyanide said it doesn't matter. It's true. And Jane Denninger says that she knew that Violet killed her brother. We then cut back to a few months ago. Cyanide followed Violet's trail to Markovia, uh, who was trying to get to the Scandinavian countries and managed to steer clear of, I guess, the Markovian War. Something. Uh, she found her, Cyanide found her, and they sort of tussled, um, but Cyanide was quicker on the draw with her gun, which is poison darts, not actual bullets, and shot Violet and killed her. Um, she then stripped her body of all identification and left. Uh, I don't know how that was supposed to get the formula back, because, uh, I mean... If she didn't have it on her person, then why does it? Why would killing her get you the formula back? It's short-sighted. Cyanide is uh, too quick on the draw. But they're shocked that Violet survived the poison darts and obviously is still around. Violet doesn't remember how. Tobias Whale then, I guess, makes a real leap of logic and says that he assumed that Miss Harper committed the formula to her photographic memory since it was not found on her person. And... So that's also, I don't know if that was established earlier that Violet Harper, the previous Violet Harper, has a photographic memory. But if Ty Tobias Whale is just like, oh, I'm sure she just remembers it. What a weird leap. What a weird leap in logic, Tobias Whale. Um, okay, but uh, it's fine. That's why we're here. Comics can sometimes be goofy, and that's a goofy part to make that leap if, if, he, if that wasn't already established. Um... They then hear a whooshing sound, and who makes a whooshing sound? Geoforce, when he's flying through the air. He crashes through the ceiling uh, and punches out one of Tobias Wales' guard and another one of his guards, and we see uh, Geoforce's thought bubble saying that he's exhausted from his flight here, yet he must prevail, or, you know, and then he's cut off. Which is, it's kind of weird, because another sort of weird comic thing is Geoforce is like, I can get there in two hours. No problem. I'll fly off immediately. He only gets there a few minutes before Batman and the rest of the crew. Couldn't he have just waited? Couldn't he have just flown over to the Batcave and uh, and got on the plane, and then he wouldn't be exhausted from flying there? But, you know. Uh, Geoforce and Halo used to be an item before Violet 
went uh, gave up superheroing. So you know, he obviously he wants to get there as quick as possible because he loves her. Cyanide then gets Geoforce with the whip, electrocuting him all bad, making him go ah, and uh, knocking him out. And Cyanide, being very cocky, says, "Are all superheroes as easy as this?" And off screen it says, "Here's where you find out, Leatherette." So her costume must be made of leather. Either that or he's making a, whoever said that is making a sort of joke about dominatrix and, and her outfit. Which, I mean, now that I think about it, the whip, the thigh-high boots, I guess, yeah, it is kind of dominatrix-esque uh, in terms of costume and aesthetic. Uh, we then see a picture of uh, Tobias Whale snapping his neck in one direction. Not like snapping his neck and dying, but he just like he's turning his neck or his head so fast. That it's very silly. He looks like he barely has a nose. Very Voldemort-esque, which I hate to make a reference to J.K. Rowling's stupid property that I don't like or her. But uh, still, it's a it's a it's a cultural touchstone, so you'll understand. And he says, "You shockedly." And uh, we then cut to the outsider standing outside the big hole in the wall. And Black Lightning says, "You bet, tons of fun." He's making a joke about his weight. Been waiting for you to make your move since you busted out of prison. Because Tobias Whale is a Black Lightning villain, as I've read. I think I've said before this. Uh, Batman thinks good thinking, Lightning. He'll think he's our connection with this case, not Halo. So they must not know that Violet Harper is Halo. Uh, they must just think that she's Violet Harper, uh, which, okay, that, that makes sense. Uh, there's then some battling, uh, metamorpho turns into liquid mercury and makes a bunch of the bad guys slip on the slippery surface of mercury. Tobias Whale and Jane Denninger, uh, make an escape. Uh, I don't know why Tobias Whale's like, I gotta save this, this random woman that I'm using for leverage or I'm using for the information that she has, but he is, which like, Hey, that's good. I guess she didn't, she's not a part of the 100. Uh, they say, Tobias Whale uh, tells Jane Denninger that they'll get Violet Harper some other day. We cut to Katana, and she is threatening uh, Dr. Moon because he is, he hurt Violet. Uh, and, and Violet says, don't kill him, Katana. And she says, very well, but his pain will make him wish I had. Ooh, Ooh. that's a lot of pain then, isn't it? Uh, Cyanide gets Katana with her whip, uh, zapping her, uh, but only stunning her. Then she gets her whip around Violet and says, uh, sh she's only stunned, but you won't be so lucky. Not this time. And then we see, bang, 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 three shots go into the side of Cyanide. And who's holding the gun but Sam Harper? And he says, get away from my daughter! And... Uh, Cyanide pulls up her gun and goes thup thup because it's a dark gun obviously it's not a not a regular gun and gets both Margaret and Sam and these are poison darts so they're going to die and Violet rushes to her parents and says try not to move I'll get help and Sam says I'm afraid it's too late for that Violet I was wrong about you I'm glad and Margaret says I only wish you remembered us and Violet says but I do. I do remember you. I'm only sorry I didn't remember earlier. So very, very sorry. She trails out as they die, uh, holding each other like a very uh, loving couple. We then cut to the Arlington police station where 
Batman is talking to the chief of police and says, I appreciate your help in this matter. And the chief of police says, too bad that whale fellow got away yesterday. Batman worse about the Harpers. But I'll be glad to see that the local press downplays it. Batman says, I knew I could count on you. And then the chief says, of course you can. We law enforcement men have to stick together, don't we? And Batman is looking at the screen like he hates his life and he hates this man. And he says, yes, chief, we do. We then cut to a snowy cemetery where Violet is putting flowers on the graves of Samuel and Margaret Harper. And it says, beloved mother and father. And she's crying. And, uh... Tatsu walks up and says, Gabrielle, are you all right? And uh, Violet says, oh, Tatsu, it's so senseless. Those poor sweet people caught in the middle of something that wasn't even their fault. They died for nothing. And Tatsu says, not for nothing, at least. You have recovered your memory. And dot, dot. And Violet says, no, I haven't. And Tatsu says, but you said you told them. And Violet says, they were, they were dying, Tatsu. They gave their lives to save me. They were dying, and all they wanted to hear was that I remembered being their daughter and that I loved them. How could I deny them that comfort? Oof. Whew. That just gives me goosebumps. It's very emotional. And I mean, I mean, all that, that's fair, right? The last thing that I would want to know dying is that my daughter doesn't remember me and that I died for nothing, saving her life, saving the life of someone who no longer remembers me or has any affection really for me. So to give them like one peaceful, contented feeling before they die, that's really nice, I think. Even if it is a lie, uh, I think that's really nice. And and that is the end. Uh, presumably, I guess we'll probably find out in the next issue, but presumably Violet will come back to the Outsiders and continue being Halo since she doesn't really have anybody else in the world that she can remember. Uh, so So that should be interesting. And I think, oh, that's that's sick. I didn't even see this. At the end, there is a uh, a full page, uh, oh gosh, a full page illustration of all the outsiders together. It looks really sick. I think I'll I'll probably post that. That looks cool. That looks cool. I didn't notice that when I was reading through it the first time. But that is Batman and the Outsiders, uh, sort of you know ragtag group that Batman's put together since he left the Justice League. Uh, but I think it's cool, and I mean, this is the first time that the Outsiders ever existed. This is they're only twenty episodes, twenty episode, twenty issues in. They haven't existed before this, but now they're a sort of mainstay of the DC universe. The Outsiders are, you know, kicking around every once in a while. Batman or or Nightwing or uh, whoever needs to, you know, have a secret covert ops team. Uh, the Outsiders are there, and that's cool and great. But uh, now let's move on to. Blue Devil number 11. Now, I have to admit, I know very little about Blue Devil. Um, I th- I mean, he's obviously not a very big part of the DC Universe. Uh, and I know in the past, like last episode, I kind of dismissed c- characters that were less prominent. Uh, but I at least know that Blue Devil is around, or was around during the New 52. He had a a sort of co-partnered duo comic title with Black Lightning, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, And I find the idea of Blue Devil to be very interesting and cool. His design is very cool. The idea of his powers are very cool. Uh, But let's talk about this. So he's obviously debuting 
for the first time on the podcast. Uh, so Blue Devil is Daniel Patrick Cassidy, a uh, stuntman, I believe, uh, in Hollywood. Um, and he debuted originally in Fury of Firestorm number 24 on March 8th, 1984. So he is barely a, not even, not even a year old. And he already has his own solo title, which I think happens a lot more in the past than it does now. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just feel like most Characters have to establish themselves a little bit more before they get their own solo title. Uh, but yeah, he debuted with a 16-page backup story in Fury of Firestorm number 24, and less than a year later, he is 11 issues into his own solo series. So that's cool. Um, the issue that we're about to cover is written by Todd Klein, penciled by Todd Smith, 1D. Todd Todd Klein had 2Ds. Inked by Mike Gustavo. Gustavich, Gustovich, lettered by John E. Workman Jr., and colored by Michelle Wolfman. So let's get into it. The cover is uh, Blue Devil, and he's looking scared and shocked, and he is surrounded by um, a blonde woman in a very scantily clad outfit, a sort of rat policeman that says Goon Squad on his shoulder patch, and a robot with a megaphone for a nose and a very smiley mouth. And then there is a... We see the back of a big robotic person. Uh, and he has a one of those um, one of those little clapper thingies. Oh, man. Oh, man. What are they called? In movies, they go take, you know, you know uh, uh, Casablanca, scene two, tank, take five mark and then they, they slap the thing because that it is visual and audio so they know how to sync up the i don't know what they're called god uh okay but he's holding one of those and it says on it seven millimeter dreams take two get that devil good so so it's, it's a very it's a very colorful very busy cover and uh it uh looks fine to me i think i think it's fine uh and we cut uh we immediately get into some action um there is a man uh, we see the front of that red robotic figure, and it is a man in a robotic suit, and his name is The Auditor, and he's been the downfall of more Hollywood epics than Siskel and Ebert. Now, I should explain some things there. An auditor is a person who kind of checks the budget and makes sure that movies are not overspending things or, you know, kind of wasting the studio's money, and Siskel and Ebert are a famous, now both dead, uh partnership that reviewed movies both in print and on television uh famous for you know famous for all their their you know no bs sort of reviews they spoke their minds because they care about movies and uh blue devil is fighting this uh auditor and his attacks aren't really working and the auditor is spraying blue devil with acid which isn't good uh, we then sort of see a little block uh, that explains some things. That several months ago on Il du Diable, Marla Bloom and her cast and crew recorded a grand, glorious vision. Now Dan Casty must battle to keep alive their dot 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 seventy millimeter dreams, which is the name of this issue. And when we get into it, you'll understand why it's called that. It's very apt. So we are on this set of we're on lot B. Uh, of the vast 
Werner Brothers Studio, not Warner Brothers. This is a fun little thing. Uh, being used, uh, Lot B is being used by Marla Bloom Associates to film uh, the Blue Devil promotional film uh, for the Blue Devil movie. Uh, because that's how this all started. Blue Devil got his powers by... He made a technological suit with an exoskeleton uh, that gave him increased strength and, and speed and stuff like that, but then he got attacked by uh, Neb Neb Nebon, Nibon, uh, Nekon, uh, a devil, a demon, that uh, some magical react magic reacted with his suit and bonded it to his skin. So he can't take off the blue devil costume. Uh, so now, I mean, it's Hollywood, so people are like, yeah, that's, you're a big blue devil? That's normal, that's fine. So he just he just goes about his day being a big blue devil. But luckily, he was making a movie about a blue devil character, and he was going to be the stuntman for it. So there you go. Uh, so they're filming this pr promotional video, and he's doing all these you know cool stunts, and they're, they're filming it all, when suddenly he slips, and... He crashes into, you know, the the off off screen, off offset into you know, people and stuff, and and wastes the take and all. Because like every time you do a take with involving special effects and all that kind of stuff, that costs money. So resetting that, redoing all the special effects, you know, gunshots, explosions, laser beams, whatever you want to call it. Back in the day, especially, you have to reset all that and you have to spend more money on it. So it's like uh, the scene in The Godfather, if you've seen The Godfather, where, uh, spoilers for The Godfather, if you haven't seen it, the movie from 1972. Uh, so spoilers, I'm, it'll be about 30 seconds, uh, and if you don't want to hear the spoilers, s just skip ahead like 30 seconds and uh, go. When Sonny, um, the character Sonny, plays by James Caan, gets shot, That's that scene cost $100,000. Just that few seconds on screen because of all of the gunshots that had to come into his body or come out of his body because there's these like little tiny explosions that cost money to put in. Uh, so like things like that cost money. So redoing it, you really want to get it on the first try. So redoing it costs more money and that's bad. And, and that's sort of the initiating action in this sequence. All right. So, welcome back, people who didn't want The Godfather, part of The Godfather, spoiled. Um, but I understand. I don't like spoilers either, but it, you should see The Godfather. It's a very good movie. Uh, I also just read a book uh, called Take the Gun, Leave the Cannoli, uh, which is a very good book about the making of the movie The Godfather. All right, enough of Nick's reading corner. Let's get back to uh, cool books that have pictures in them. So, he messes up this sequence and marla bloom happens to be on the phone with uh mr verner uh head of the studio which is actually kind of different than how the warner brothers studio actually went about because at this time in 1985 warner brothers is no longer owned by the warner brothers they're either uh dead or they've sold the company and then died uh, I don't know if Jack Warner is still alive at this time, but uh, he doesn't own the studio anymore. It's likely owned at this time by Seven Arts Entertainment. So um, so it's funny that Mr. Werner, which is the Jack Warner sort of person, is still alive in this. That's fun. Uh, and he can hear, he heard like what was happening all the way in his office across the lot. 
Um, and so she, he's, you know, he's mad because this, this film, this shoot, this film and the, everything about this film is over budget. They're over budget like crazy. So he's sending his, his auditor, HP Wally, over to check the account books uh, for the film. So they get Blue Devil up after crashing into equipment and stuff, and he's woozy. He's got the stars over his head. Um, he, they say, oh, I'm sorry, I've just been kind of woozy since breakfast. And one of the, the directors says, well, yeah, better hope the boss wasn't watching if she was. And then at that moment, over the loudspeaker, it says, Cassidy, report to my office now. So he has to go talk to Marla. Uh, so they're going to reset while... And it takes time, so so now kind of Blue Devil has some time to get yelled at by Marla uh, while they reset all of the special effects. So Marla informs Blue Devil that uh, Mr. Werner is sending an auditor down, and that's not good because the film is $2 million over budget, and that's bad. A million dollars is still a lot of money in 1985. Uh, so that's very, very bad. And so Blue Devil uh, hopes. I guess I, I guess I don't need to call him Blue Devil while he is not doing superhero stuff because he always looks like Blue Devil. I guess I'll call him Daniel Patrick Cassidy. I'll call him Cassidy uh, or Daniel. I'll call him Blue Devil. Let's stop. Let's because then I will get into the, the rhythm of call, saying Blue Devil when he does do superhero stuff. So Blue Devil says, "Well, why can't we find an angel to fill the gap?" An angel would be a you know an angel investor who just wants to give money and maybe just have their name on it, not have any sort of say. And Marla says, "No, I've put my name, my reputation, my savings on this project, and no one else is getting a piece of it." Which fair, 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 fair. So uh, Blue Devil does a big sneeze. He seems to be getting sick. He's coming under the weather, uh, which is not good, not good at all. So uh, Marla tells him to go get some rest while they wait for the retake uh, to be set up. And she wants it to be, be sure it's the last one. So Blue Devil begins walking to his trailer. And he meets uh, a young gopher who I believe is going to eventually become Kid Devil, his sidekick. But I'm not sure because this kid never says his name. He's just always referred to as Gopher. Which a gopher on a, on a movie set is just someone who goes for things like gets coffee gets all this stuff anything that anyone asks basically he gets them uh and uh this kid is apparently the nephew of marla bloom so you know he loves blue devil and he knows that next time he's going to get it perfect he just knows it uh and then uh, a man named wayne tarrant comes up and yells at blue devil and told, told him that the set, the take, the previous take should have been perfect. And now Werner's on, on the film's case. And rumor has it that H.P. Uh, Wally is coming down to close us down. Which, I mean, is a thing that happens. So if a movie goes way too far over budget and there's no way it can recoup, they might just eat that loss and, and shut it down to stop it from spending any more money. But... And uh, Tarrant is mad because Blue Devil may still have a deal if... He does whatever he wants, but uh, but otherwise none of us will have a career, which I don't know if it's true because Blue Devil can really only play Blue Devil. So if the Blue Devil original film doesn't get like a sequel, he's really out of a job, I guess. But uh, so, you know, he the Blue Devil gets done getting yelled at by uh, by 
Tarrant, and he goes to his trailer to rest up before the re retake. When inside is a woman, a blonde woman, that they clearly know each other. They're clearly, they seem to be in some sort of relationship. He, her name is Sharon, and uh, she made him some chili because she had some publicity stills to do earlier today. And then she thought she'd treat him to some of her famous chili. And that's great. I think, I think a nice stew like that is great for when you're sick. You know, when you got a cold, some hot, some hot chili. Delicious. Clear up them sinuses real nice. So he sits down to eat some chili, and she says, tell me about your day. Um, he says, oh, ugh, I, you know, I messed up, and I'm getting sick. And she makes a joke about how she can't tell because he's blue. <laughs> so she can't really tell if he's under the weather. Um, uh, and then Blue Devil asks her if she wants to join him for dinner tonight. Uh, a bit of low-key celebrating. I don't know what they're celebrating. Maybe just like the finishing of this promotional film and the film in general. Sure, like a rap party. Uh, and she says, just the two of us? Oh, Danny, you know I'd love to, but Marla is getting on, getting pretty steamed about all the scandal sheets. So like um, the Hollywood Reporter or TMZ. Yeah, I don't think they exist. I don't think TMZ exists, but things like that. Talking about them being seen out in public. The Beauty and the Beast, you know? Because, like, like I said, everybody in Hollywood must be, just be like, it's fine that he's always, he always looks like Blue Devil. It's it's normal and fine and cool, and everyone's, everyone's down for it. So she says that she can't because they don't like all the scandals. Not good for either one of their image, so... Blue Devil's kind of bummed about that, but once the movie comes out, you know, things will be different, and that's great. That's good for everyone involved. We then cut back to, not cut back to, cut to later when they're doing take two, and he's doing everything great. So, and we have these sort of split screen views of Blue Devil doing his stunts, and he's thinking about what thing he has to do after the next thing. And alongside it, we see H.P. Wally driving into the, the lot, getting out of the car, and walking up to the, you know, to the stage. And suddenly, you know, Blue Devil gets distracted by seeing that uh, he's here, or like that the people are, the, the, the auditor is here, and he kind of forgets his count where the next thing is he's supposed to jump to or do in terms of stunts. And he lands and bangs his head on the ground hard. There's a big thud sound effect. And so that's not good. We then see uh, Blue Devil through his eyes opening up. Everything's sort of psychedelic and, and out of focus and, and weird. And you hear, you see snippets of, you know, words. It's like, Ister, Cassid, okay. Make it easy now. Hospital, and uh, then then he you know we cut outside of him and says, "Call an ambulance." I'm he's like, "I'm fine, I'm fine. I just stumbled again." And then H.B. Wally is yelling, you know, this waste of a production budget. All these people have to be paid to comfort one sick stuntman. And then you know. Look at this, the equipment's ruined, he's probably drunk. I haven't seen such a, a gross negligence since Gone with the Wind, which makes this dude very, very old. Because Gone with the Wind, oh man, that's at least... I, I mean, I, I don't know the exact date, but at least at the latest in the 40s, if not in the 30s. 
Like that is a that is a old movie. So this man is either very old or just knows a lot about the history of film. So uh, he you know he 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 says that Blue Devil's probably drunk, and Blue Devil says no, crawl you know go crawl back in your hole. And Wally says, don't you know I have the ability to destroy this picture, to destroy you? Very well, then. You leave me no choice. I must deal with your insolence. Face me, inebriate, which is a term for someone who's inebriated. Um, and it's and Blue Devil is kind of made to turn around against his will. And he's like, what? And Wally says, turn, however, unsteadily and witness the auditor. And we see the auditor in his big robotic suit. He's got a big dollar sign over his head. I'll probably post a picture of this um, because it looks ridiculous. He has one. Of, he has a big pen for one of his weapons, and he has one of those, you know, clappy thingies that I don't remember what they're called. Uh, for this other one, it's like razor sharp, so it's like big scissors. And <laughs> Blue Devil says, "Does everybody in California have a costume?" And he's like, let's let's just talk about this. Uh, like, there's no need for anything. And the auditor says, there is a need for your elimination. And he shoots him with acid. And Blue Devil says, yeah, oh, acid. And he's like, wait a minute. Haven't I said that before? That's weird. Um, and also, it's weird that this man who works at the studio has a robotic costume. So, Blue Devil, who, do, who is a reluctant hero he doesn't like to be a superhero he just wants to be a stuntman and be famous in hollywood but so he runs away because he's like i'm not i'm not fighting this dude i'm running so he runs and jumps into this sort of snowy russian set set where uh wayne uh tarrant finds him and says and he says you're in bad shape uh i've come to help you to the studio infirmary it's like oh cool and he's like all right let's cut through this building and they do they get into like a an interior and Tarrant lays him down on a bed inside of a cage and obviously the blue devil's kind of out of it right now so he lets him and Wayne Tarrant closes the uh, gate uh, the cell door and then uh, picks up a phone or a radio and tells and calls the auditor and says that he's got him but then while doing that he turns into a big you know anthropomorphic rat wearing uh like a police uniform. And you know what's weird? His patch looks like it has a Batman symbol on it, which is weird. Um, so that's weird. Um, we then cut to... Well, actually, no. We don't cut to anything. Auditor then, you know, bursts through the ceiling and says, well done, sycophant, which is apparently what Wayne Tarrant is called. Uh, sycophant, which is not a good term. He's clearly a bad guy. And uh, Blue Devil uses his strength to break through this cell because obviously it's probably just a cell for effect purposes and not literally trying to keep someone inside. And he kind of lunges at the at uh, the auditor and sycophant and knocks them both into a wall, and the set falls down on top of them. And so the Blue Devil has a chance to escape, and he is jumping over things, and he jumps into this sort of high tech part of the lot and gopher uh calls down to him says dan wait you can't run out on us now and he's like you're the strongest most powerful hero of all and uh blue devil's like well i'm not a hero 
and uh, Gopher says, Dan, Dan, you've got the cha- you got to change that tune. And then Gopher changes into the uh, robot with a megaphone for a nose that we see on the front cover. Uh, and he names himself Hyperbole. And he's going he's gonna to tell or, you know, sing Blue Devil's praises all over town. And he flies off. But before he can, Blue Devil, like, throws a, a smoke bomb or something at him to, to, like, knock him out of the sky to stop him from, you know, giving away his position. And he rushes out of the studio. Blue Devil does. And he, he's calling for a taxi, or he wants to call for a taxi, but there's a car already waiting for him. And he looks inside, and it's Sharon. But Sharon looks a lot different than she did previously. Previously, she was wearing sort of like cut-off Daisy Duke shorts and a, and a tube top, uh, which, I mean, is not the most, um, I guess, modest of clothing. But she's like supposed to be like the girl next door, like, you know, sweet and innocent, stuff like that. And now she's wearing like a big feather boa and a lot of jewelry and opera gloves and a fancy dress with a really plunging neckline. And he's shocked. And she says, get in, get in. And he's like, thanks, Sharon, but where'd you get this limo? And she says, oh, don't you love it? It's a special deal I made with Werner Publicity. Uh, and as they drive away, the auditor smashes through the wall and says, uh, I won't rest until I've written you off forever. And Sharon's like, you're safe now, my brave devil. And as for that little fever of yours, let's see if I can take your mind off it. Hmm? And she gives him a big old kiss. And Blue Devil is shocked because, like earlier, she said, I, well, I can't be seen with you because it's scandalous. And she says, uh, he says, what's gotten into you? And she says, you mean my image, Miss Girl Next Door? I'm through with that PR nonsense. Come over here, lover, and say hello to the new me. The new me that wants to have sex with you. Uh, so he's shocked and he's like, well, this is weird. Where are you taking us? And she says a press conference to announce the steamy details of our mm, intimate relationship. And he's shocked by that. And she says, don't worry, Werner is going to pay us very well to put that witch Marla in her place. Because it'd be bad for the movie if this comes out. And I don't know why. Because, I mean, if it's me, I don't really care if the two stars in a movie are hooking up outside of the film it's like whatever as long as the film's good but he he, uh, blue devil wants to get out and he goes up to tell the driver to you know stop the car but no one's driving the car uh and she says she grabs and pulls him back into the back and says no use resisting lover you should know you can never escape from dot 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 scandal and scandal is you know kind of stylized and clearly this is her her name now her name is now scandal which okay uh blue devil tries to bust through the roof to escape but the wing the car grows wings and flies up to catch him uh or to chase after him or actually it does it runs into him in mid midair and gets him on the hood and we then see hyperbole he's back and he's you know saying that you know uh, he's saying, extra, extra, this just in. Special effects wizard caught in love nest with scandal. Pictures on page six, film at 11. And then he, he shoots him with, um, he like throws a thing at him, knocking him out of the sky again. Then sh- uh, scandal, I guess, not Sharon, busts through the roof of the um, the car where, where Blue Devil previously did. And she now appears to be naked. It, of course, doesn't show anything because... This is comic books, and this is not 
pornography. But she does appear to be naked. Uh, you can just tell. And she's like, what's wrong? I know you've been dreaming about me just as I have about you. Please don't make me wait any longer. I need you. And then suddenly Sycophant is there, the rat man who was Wayne Tarrant. He says, if she's too much woman for you, I'll have to take over. And Blue Devil's like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. You got to let me out of here. And they say, if you insist, so the the flying car, with it's got big old bird wings. It does a sort of barrel roll and drops, you know, Blue Devil out of the sky. So that's, and then suddenly we see Blue Devil and he says, no, wait, help. There's no place like, he was going to say like home because it's a Wizard of Oz sort of reference. Um, and he's waking up in a bed and everyone's there. Uh, Wayne Tarrant is there and uh, Gopher is there and Sharon's there and they're all back to normal. And there's a doctor there and he's like, you know, Lie quiet now. You've just had a bad dream. And he's like, yep, you got quite a bump on the head. We thought for a minute you were, go you were going to leave us. And he's like, I remember. I remember. It wasn't very nice at all. And he's like, and you were there. And you were there. And you were there. Which is, again, another reference to Wizard of Oz. If you haven't seen Wizard of Oz, a movie from the 30s, she wakes up at the end. and It was all a dream. All the people she met were... Similar to people she knew in real life. Which is true. You can't dream about a face that you've never seen before. So you always dream about people you've at least seen, if not known. And and Blue Devils explain the dream. Yeah, but anyways, this is my room and you're all here. Except for that little guy, the one Werner sent. What happened to him? And Wayne then points to the sky and he says, You mean the auditor? He's right upstairs. Been waiting to see you. And now I should say they are in a trailer. Which doesn't have an upstairs. Because at that instant, the roof is ripped off and a giant uh, auditor, the one big robot suit, is standing above them. And uh, so Blue, Dry Blue Devil grabs his trident, which he hasn't had this entire time. It's obviously been back in his room. Uh, and he, you know, goes into action and he he's you know, fighting the, the auditor and he's flying around. Uh, or jumping around, I guess. I, just, I, I don't know if he can actually fly. Uh, and he blasts the auditor in the eyes with his trident, which has a sort of beam ability. And uh, the auditor backhands him out of the sky. And uh, the blue devil flies all the way to the water, to the ocean. Uh, and he he comes to in the ocean and is picked up by this these three men in a rowboat and you can see a sort of two-masted schooner in the background old-timey sailing ship and uh they 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 say uh, welcome aboard uh, you know you look quite odd i think maybe you're just a man in a costume and not an actual devil and uh, blue devil's like yeah thanks for pulling me in the name's cassidy and the guy says well met sir call me ishmael and Blue Devils at first is like, oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Ishmael. What? And then suddenly a whale bursts out of the ocean, and it does look like um, the auditor, H.P. Uh, Wally. He has little glasses on and a little tiny mustache and big eyebrows, and he's a big whale. And then uh, <laughs> uh, they, of course, call him the white whale, even though he is blue. Uh and they ask the stranger, Blue Devil, to save their ship. And he says, no sweat, Ahab. I auditioned for this scene 
I auditioned with this scene for a Trek movie a few years back. So now he's going to quote the book Moby Dick, and he says, To the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee, thus I give up my spear. And he throws the trident, but uh, the whale is too big and too powerful, and so he eats the boat, and uh, the blue devil falls, and he falls through the water and through a hole, and then thuds loudly uh, in between a bunch of anthropomorphic cards from Alice in Wonderland. And they sing a little song. They say, you're going to lose your head. You're going to lose your head. It serves you white. It serves you right. You're bluish white and roses should be red. And uh, Blue Devil says enough of this and kicks one of the cards, causing a sort of domino effect. And he's like, I think I can guess who the Red Queen will turn out to be. And yes, it, is, it does turn out to be the Auditor. Uh, he's got, he still has a mustache, but he is now dressed like the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland. Um, and Blue Devil tries to escape, and he runs onto what looks like film from a film reel. And the auditor says, going so soon, Devil, and he uses his little clap, is it like a mortarboard? No, that's the thing with graduation caps. I'm just going to quickly look up movie board clack. Clapper. Clapper. Is it just called a clapper board? That's... No, what is the movie Clapper thing called? A slate. Oh, man. A slate. That's it. I should have done that at the beginning. He uses his slate weapon to snip the film that Blue Devil is running on to kind of strand him in this sort of nebulous space. When uh, uh, Blue Devil has kind of given up, he's like, I can't, I can't, clearly can't beat you. Do your worst. When suddenly a spotlight comes down and a five-note theme rings out through this weird void that they're in. And a golden woman, a blue devil calls her an angel, flies down from above. And she says, yes, you're angel, and I've come to help. And she blasts the auditor with magical golden rays and saves uh, blue devil. Um, And she says... Or, and he says, how can I ever thank you? And she says, no need, brave warrior, for I bring glad tiding, tidings. Always remember, every cloud has a silver lining. Tomorrow is another day. It's always darkest before the Dan. Dan? Are you awake? And as, this is, as, she, as she's saying this, she's slowly turning back into Marla Bloom. And Blue Devil's laying on the ground. He's like, Marla, wh- what happened? She says, well, you tried to break the floor with your chin. And you've been unconscious for several minutes. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess I ruined the retake, huh? I'm sorry. And H.P. Wally, in a regular green suit, runs up and says, on the contrary, son, you got through just fine. But more important, are you all right? You had me very worried. And Blue Devil's like, well, I had you worried. I thought you'd be really angry with me about ruining the take this morning. And he says, well, of course not, Mr. Cassidy. Here, we'll help you out to the ambulance. And, and, uh... Uh, Blue Devil says, why all this fuss? I have a cold, that's all. And Marla tells him, you're getting a checkup. And uh, H.P. Wally says, the Blue Devil is only a movie character, son, while you are an irreplaceable person whose health must be protected. That's part of our responsibility. And uh, then, as they're loading him into the ambulance, Blue Devil says, wonder if they'd let us have a rap party in the hospital. 
Uh, and then it sort of ends like it does in the movies where it says, you know, seven, 70 millimeters dreams and MBA production, uh, script by art direction, set direction, color processing, titles, editing. And, and instead of, uh, it has all the, uh, comics writers and draw, uh, artists for this issue as like the script and all that kind of stuff. And then it has special thanks for additional dialogue to Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, Edgar Allan Wolfe, Herman Melville, and Lewis Carroll, who are, you know, some of the authors that wrote things that were in referenced in this issue. And then it says it says the end title card like, you know, it does in the movies, in old timey movies. Uh a, a goofy episode, uh, I would say. Uh or episode, sorry, gosh, issue. But I do think it fits well with Blue Devil. He is a stuntman. He does work out of Hollywood. That's his whole thing. So I think having a dream where he dreams about all these old movies uh, and and stuff is really, really good. Uh, hopefully next time he actually does some superheroing. Although, I, like I said, he is a reluctant superhero. So I'm sure it'll just be more shenanigans, Hollywood shenanigans. Which, I mean, I love Hollywood and I love movies and references to them. So... Uh, I think the Blue Devil books are going to be right up my alley. But uh, let's now finally move on to our final issue, which is Green Lantern number 187, uh, released January 17th, 1985, cover date April 1985, like all of them have been. And for this one, we've got a bunch of debuts to the podcast, uh, but one actually who we've already debuted in this show, which is also going to be in this issue. Uh, so to the podcast, we have debuting Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, uh, the second Green Lantern. Uh, showcase number 22, July 28th, 1959, is when he originally debuted. John Stewart will also be in this issue, although we've already met him in Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Kat Matui, uh, who originally debuted in Green Lantern number 30 on May 28th, 1964. Thomas Kalmuka, uh, who debuted in Green Lantern number two on July 26, 1960. We have Eclipso, but not the evil... Well, I guess... is this? I'm not sure if this Eclipso is evil or not. But uh, uh, this is Bruce Gordon Eclipso, not the evil Eclipso from Identity Crisis. And, and, and he originally debuted in House of Secrets number 61 on May 16, 1963. We also have the debut on the podcast of Carol Ferris... Uh, love interest, sometimes enemy of Hal Jordan Green Lantern. She originally made her debut in Showcase number 22, uh, just like Hal Jordan did in his first appearance. And finally, we have Predator, who is a uh, sort of black and silver villain guy who kind of uh, knocks Hal Jordan around in this episode. God, episode issue my goodness and he debuted just a few months prior to this issue in green lantern number 178 on april 19th 1984 now let's get into sort of the production side of this issue uh story one which is the main story that we'll be covering uh was written by paul kupperberg penciled by bill willingham inked by rich rankin lettered by helen vesic and colored by Anthony Tallinn. And then story two, which we'll just summarize because it's sort of just a fill-in story, uh, is written by Mike Barron, uh, drawn art artist duties by William Marshall Rogers, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Anthony Tallinn. 
Uh, so let's get into the issue itself. Uh, let's start with the cover. The cover is uh, kind of dynamic in the sense and kind of shows uh, one of the plots. I wouldn't say A or B plot. Um, I think they both share importance in the story uh, for this this issue. Uh, it shows uh, John Stewart, Green Lantern, out in space with the space shuttle and some astronauts out on uh, EVAs, EVA suits or extravehicular. What does EVA stand for? EVA space. Extravehicular activity. Okay, booyah. Uh, so, uh, but the spatial is all kind of sort of ripped to pieces, and the uh, closest astronaut to us is staring at uh, John Stewart Green Lantern and say, "Don't bother helping us, Lantern. You've already done enough." So that's not that's not great. It's not a great thing. Doesn't really paint John in a very competent light. But as we learn, he's very new uh, to this story, or to being Green Lantern, I should say. Uh, we then start on the issue, which is titled A Day in His Life, which is or what this story is called, I should say, and the issue, because it's the most important story in the issue. But uh, they are at the funeral for uh, Rich Davis, who is a former test pilot for Ferris Air. Uh, they're all kind of sad. They're, the, the funeral is wrapping up. Uh, we, see, we see everybody. We see Hal. We see Carol. We see John, he's at the front and center. We see Carol's dad, uh, Mr. Ferris. I don't know his first name. We see um, we see Thomas Kalmucka, uh, Hal Jordan's friend. He doesn't make any other appearance in this issue, but uh, he's there. And we learned that Rich Davis died doing a practice or test flight for an experimental solar jet. Uh, he was attacked by Eclipso who, I, I know I was quibbling before about whether or not this Eclipso was a bad guy or a good guy. It's a bad guy. I think Eclipso is probably always a bad guy. Uh, but Or bad girl, you know, because she was a girl for a while. But he uh, had a heart attack during the flight, but was able to safely land the plane. But unfortunately, he didn't make it, so he died. And Hal is kind of feeling guilty because he says it should have been him. He's the best test pilot at Ferris Air. And uh, Carol's like, you know, this isn't about the plane, is it, Hal? And Hal's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And she says, all I know is that ever since that new Green Lantern appeared, you've been walking around in a funk. And Hal's like, well, Carol, I mean, and he's like, yeah, well, it's, it's hard to make any transition this big, I guess. But I'm getting there. So what we, what we learn later in this issue well, you know what? I'll wait until later in the issue. I don't want to reveal it too early because, you know, it's like you're reading it, so I can't reveal information before it happens. So never mind. Uh, and he thinks about John Stewart as Green Lantern. He, you know, he did a fine job getting Rich, you know, the chance to complete his mission, but unfortunately couldn't save him. Uh, John Stewart is talking to Mr. Ferris, and he says, oh, well, let's head back to the office, Mr. Ferris, if you need a lift. But before they can leave, they are interrupted by... Um, this man named Smith, Mr. Smith is the only name we ever get for him. Uh, he, he looks, and yes, he does look like the, uh, Agent Smith from The Matrix. He's wearing dark sunglasses, has dark hair, wearing a suit. And, uh, Mr. Ferris, Carol's dad, is very mad at him because he is the owner of Continental Petroleum, Control, 
and uh, they have been expanding their influence over Ferris aircraft and uh, are, are, you know, clearly they're planning to do a sort of hostile takeover of said uh, company of Ferris Air. So he's mad at him. Uh, he's yelling at him. He says, it's so Mr. Smith walks up and says, good afternoon, gentlemen. I hope the ceremony hasn't started yet. Well, Mr. Smith, if you owned a watch, you would know that it started and finished. Uh uh, Mr. Ferris yells at him. And who the hell asked you to be here anyways, you blasted leech. So yeah, Carol Ferris, not Carol Ferris, Mr. Ferris is very angry at this man because he doesn't want to lose control of his company. No one would. Mr. Smith playing it cool is like, well, as representative of your financial investors, I felt it was my duty to attend the funeral of one of your employees. It's like, well, sure, whatever, dick. Uh, And Bruce Gordon then walks up. Bruce Gordon is either secretly or not secretly Eclipso. I don't know if it's a sort of situation where Bruce Gordon doesn't know that he's Eclipso, or he does and he's hiding it from everyone. Uh, The Eclipso portion of his personality or identity doesn't show up in this issue, so we don't really know. And he doesn't act nefarious or have any sort of internal monologue about being nefarious. But he says, uh, he makes a joke about Mr. Smith enjoying funerals, which like, got him! Got him. Um, and they storm off both uh, Gordon and uh, John Stewart storm off away from Mr. Smith after, you know, him being a real jerk. We then cut to uh, Carol and Hal in Carol's car. And uh, Hal is watching this whole interaction outside. And he said, I thought Smith would have had the good taste to stay away today because nobody likes this dude. Everybody hates this dude, Mr. Smith. And Carol says, well, why should he? The way the day is going, I wouldn't have been surprised if Eclipso had shown up too. Dang. Uh, Eclipso was the reason behind the Troubles last issue. Uh, So, you know, it's all fresh in their minds. Um, So they're, you know, talking like, oh, should we head to the office? No. Uh, Carol's not feeling well, uh, so she wants to go home. So they do. uh, And we, but before that, we cut back to the grounds of Ferris Aircraft, John Stewart and Mr. Ferris and Bruce Gordon have all returned to the Ferris Aircraft Administration building. And Mr. Ferris is still steamed about Mr. Smith. He's saying that he could have, th- he could have throttled him with his bare hands, which is like, wow. And John Stewart's like, you know, relax. You know, it doesn't, doesn't pay to let him get under your skin. And then Bruce Gordon reveals some sad news uh, to John Stewart and Mr. Ferris. He says that he thinks it's time he moved on. Uh, So with the sort of failure uh, or the the finishing of the solar jet, because I I don't think it failed. I think it just is done. They did a test flight. It works fine. Time to send it to market or time to put it into, you know, you know, production. So he's like, I think it's time for him to go. Um, and uh, he says that he's sorry, but after what's happened here, uh, the shadow of Eclipso and all, it's just too strong for him, and he thinks that it's it's time he goes. And Mr. Ferris and John are both saying, oh, no, I mean, you, you, I, I want a valuable asset like you around, you know. But uh, they both understand if he's determined to go, well, then all the best to him. So uh, he goes and cleans out his desk. Uh, sad. You know, I've never I've never uh, resigned from a job myself. Uh, my jobs just tend to kind of disappear and no longer be around for me to work them. 
Um, so I don't, I've never been on that side of this whole interaction, but uh, I bet it'd be difficult. I bet it'd be really hard. We then cut to Carol Ferris's beachfront duplex, and um, Hal is walking Carol to her front door, asking if if she wants him to come in, because they are kind of like they're in a relationship. Like you know the whole shtick with Hal and Carol. They're on again, off again. They're in love. They hate each other. Uh, Hal loves Carol. Carol can't deal with Hal being Green Lantern, which we learn uh, in a few panels. Uh, something about that. So she says no, uh, she'd rather be alone. He makes a quip about Greta Garbo, which I don't get. Um, I guess she's maybe being coy or something. I don't know. I don't know Greta Garbo's whole shtick. Um, he's like, oh, I can fix you a drink, rub your neck, and, and you know, we can relax. And she says, she's, she curses. I'm not going to say the curse because this is a family show. But uh, she says, dang it, but more, more you know, PG-13. She said no, Hal. And he's like, whoa, hey, no need to bite my head off. I was just offering. And she says, then listen to me for once. I don't feel like company right now, so give me a break. And she slams the door in his face. And he's like, okay, man, geez, if you want me, I'll be downstairs. And then she says, just having to get the last word, she says, I know where you are if I want you. So this is kind of weird. They're in a sort of relationship, but he also lives in her duplex and a duplex if you don't know is a building that houses two living areas but separate so he lives in the downstairs apartment and she lives in the upstairs apartment what a weird arrangement very weird um uh hal makes a joke about frostbite and cold shoulders all that kind of stuff and then he thinks to himself she's been so distant the last couple of days so preoccupied was it something i did i mean what more does she want from me i gave up being green lantern because she wanted it what more can i do so it's revealed to us um although if we had been reading these issues in the past we would know that hal jordan is retired from being green lantern and that's why john stewart is around um, but we're learning that just now because, you know, the whole part, the only reason of this show is to act like, oh, I just started reading from Crisis on Infinite Earths 1 and I'm reading everything after that, but nothing before. Is that a silly way to do things? Yes, but uh, this is a very silly show. We then cut back to Ferris Aircraft. John Stewart is working on some designs, which I always thought he was an architect, uh, but I guess maybe that's a thing that happens later. Uh, but he's some sort of designer, and he's trying to design aircraft or something. Uh, but he is frustrated with his designs uh, and still probably kind of bummed from the funeral. So he decides to go on patrol as Green Lantern. He charges up his ring with his lantern that he keeps in a locked filing cabinet. That's very fun. Uh, I wish I could keep that in a filing cabinet and just pull it out when I'm working at my desk. That'd be fun. Uh, and he says the oath, in brightest day, in darkest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evils might beware my power, green lantern's light. And he kind of gets some chills from that because those are some heavy, heavy words. Uh, we then cut back to the um, Carol Ferris's apartment. She's in there. And she's thinking to herself, what's wrong with me? I don't recognize myself these past few days. Something's eating at me. Um, and she's like, who am I kidding? I-, I know what it is. It's what it always is. It's Hal. Something's changed between them. And she just wishes she knew what it was. Then suddenly, 
she gasps because as she's pulling the curtains uh, away from the window, she sees a man sitting at her desk. Um, and he says, oh, I didn't mean to startle you, Miss Ferris. And uh, we cut then. A lot of cuts. A lot of just, like, cutting away from things. Uh, we cut down to Hal Jordan's apartment uh, below Carol's. And he is going to heat up some Hormel chili with beans. And he said, could have been sharing pate with Carol, but she's in a mood. So I'm stuck with chili guaranteed to destroy my stomach lining. Now, I don't know if they cleared that with Hormel first, because that seems almost like defamation or libel. Um, because I doubt Horm- Horm- Hormel chili uh, will destroy your stomach lining. I just don't think that that's a, a thing that would happen. So not not great product placement there by DC. Uh, when he hears a big thunk and yelling, and so he, he rushes out of his kitchen. He drops his Hormel chili with beans on the ground, and he rushes out of the kitchen. We then cut back up to Carol's apartment, and she's like, what do you want from me, Predator? So they've clearly met before. I mean, obviously, he debuted, uh, let me think, 187, 178, like nine issues before this. So they've clearly met before, uh, which we'll learn. Um, he's like, oh, you're upset. I know my appearance can be a trifle intimidating. And, I mean, yeah, yeah, he's got a very scary appearance. He's got, like, on a full black bodysuit with um, a very scary helmet. Uh, lots of spikes everywhere. Uh, it's all silver and shiny, and, and uh, yeah, it's kind of scary. He's got red eye lenses, and whenever something has red eye lenses, I'm always a little bit terrified of it, because you never know. Um, but he says, but I thought I'd made my intentions clear by now. I wanted to see you again. Oh, so he's, he's kind of infatuated with her. Ooh, la la. Uh, and I mean, he is a per- he, he does look like just like a regular dude underneath all of his uh, evil costume. Um, she says, all right, well, you've seen me. Now get out of here. And he's like, oh, quite the contrary. And then he kind of puts his hand on her face, kind of caresses her cheek and says, oh, I get I get you. And you can forget it, mister. I'm not interested. And he says, no, Carol, that's not true. I've kissed you. I can tell. Which, like, come on, dude. You probably forced her to kiss you, you pervert. Um, so you don't know Jack. And from behind, Predator says, I'm real glad you mentioned that, Predator, because knowing you've laid your slimy paws on her is going to make it all the more pleasurable to clean your clock. And um, the Predator laughs. The Predator laughs at Hal Jordan, and Hal Jordan hates this because he's thinking, when I was Green Lantern, I could have had him roped and tied before he got his mouth open. Uh, So Hal, you know, rushes at him. He's going to give him to the count of three, to, but he doesn't get to finish his sentence because the Predator picks him up and holds him above his head like he's a, like a little doll man. And Carol shrieks. She says, put him down, Predator. And he says, your wish, dear woman, is my command. Which, calling calling a lady a uh, woman, like, come on. That's not, that's not cool. Um, he throws Hal and... Uh, throws him into some furniture, and Hal goes, oof, and there's a big slam. And he's like, well, I'm still conscious, scum. He's like, basically, like, I didn't hear no bell. And Predator says, oh, well, my mistake. Uh, But for Carol's sake, I won't use my claws on you, because he does. He's got, like, weird bone finger accents on his gloves, and they end in, like, big scary claws. And 
Um, and then he says, well, I really don't need them for uh, prey of your meager caliber. And Carol's trying to stop him. Like, for God's sake, Predator, stop it. You'll kill him. And he says, oh, you'll, you'd be amazed at the price some people have paid for what you've just done. Uh, because Carol grabbed his arm and stopped him from, you know, beating Hal half to death. Uh, and then, just for good measure, he kind of stomps on Hal's neck um, and says, you know, you're the exception, Carol. I won't kill you, and I'll leave him be. And she says, kind of, she says, kind of whimpering, she says, thank you. N- now, please leave. Um, and he says, I'll, I'll go, dear Carol. And then, he, and then he forces a kiss on her, and she's crying. Her eyes are open, uh, which means you can tell that she's not enjoying that kiss. Because people who kiss with their eyes open, they're not into it. They're not feeling it. And he says, but I'll be back soon. And then he escapes through the window. Um, and then Cal rushes to Cal. Psh, Carol, that's a combo. That's their, that's their couple name is Cal. Um, not Harold, because that sounds dumb. Uh, Cal is their couple name. Uh, Carol rushes to Hal's side and says, oh, my God, Hal, are you all right? And he turns kind of angrily and says what do you think and then he also says a swear and he says dang it but pg-13 uh i've just been beaten to a pulp and then he says me because like he's very i mean hal jordan is hal jordan he's very cocky he's very you know full of himself sure of himself and now that he's not green lantern anymore he's not super powerful and so he is just a guy um so super powered beings can easily uh whip his butt uh, so we then cut to somewhere over Los Angeles, um, which I don't know if this is the time where Green Lantern is located in Coast City or if they're still using like regular cities. Um, I don't know. I think it'll probably be a little while maybe. Uh, let's check. Let's check. Let's do this research. Coast City. Coast City. Live on the air. We're going to do some Googling. Coast City first appeared. No, Coast City appeared in showcase number 22. Uh, so, so maybe, so I guess John Stewart has flown a little ways to wherever Los Angeles is in relation to uh, Coast City. So that's that's good to know. Oh, let's see. It's less than an hour's drive from Edwards Air Force Base. Where is Edwards Air Force Base? Uh, is located in Southern California. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's search an actual, I hope, I hope this is enjoyable for everybody. (laughs) I'm sure it's not. Okay. So Edwards Air Force Base is a real place and okay. Edwards Air Force Base is just north of Los Angeles, uh, about halfway in between Bakersfield and Los Angeles. So Coast City is about an hour's drive from that so, like, I mean, what do we think? What do we think? Maybe, like, a uh, Coast City being, like, a, maybe a Santa Barbara? Maybe a, maybe a Ventura, California equivalent? I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Learning things. Learning things. Oh, well, now this one says located less than half an hour from Edwards Air Force Base. Okay, I'm getting conflicted information about this. Less than an hour's drive. Hmm. Well, enough of that. Let's get back to the issue. I'm very sorry for all of that, but hopefully that was uh, maybe informative. So actually, we have no idea where Coast City is. I thought it could have been Santa Barbara, but if it's less than an hour, it's like a half hour, then I don't think it is. Um, 
But, okay, so we cut back to Jon Stewart, and he's flying over Los Angeles, however long it took him to fly there from Coast City, wherever that is. And he thinks that patrolling is boring. It's very, very boring. And he's, he makes a comment that it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's really only Superman can patrol well from up in the sky because, like, he has telescopic vision and, and super hearing, so he can, like, hear and spot trouble from, like, the altitude that Jon Stewart's flying. Could Jon Stewart fly closer to the buildings? Yeah, absolutely. But he has an idea. Uh, the Guardians told him that the, his ring can do anything, so he says to the, he thinks to his ring, you know, take me to, you know, find the action, find me something to do. And the ring puts out some energy that looks like an arrow, and it kind of goes forward and then points up. And uh, John Stewart's like, all right, we're going up. It's probably an airplane in trouble. But he keeps going up. And he says, well, the only planes that fly up here are launched from Cape Canaveral, which for all my non-American listeners and listeners who just don't care about space, Cape Canaveral is where they launch, uh, NASA launches their space flights from. It's in, it's in southern Florida. Um, and it's, it's cool. Uh, so, uh, John Stewart wants to get an idea of what, um, what's, what he's going after. And so his ring pulls up a little screen and he sees, uh, the space shuttle and it's kind of spinning out of control up in orbit. And, uh, uh, John Stewart makes a comment that, uh, the picture is better than his Betamax can do, which, Betamax, wow, what a... I mean, it is 1985, so Betamax is still around. Uh, VCR hasn't become... Or VCR recorders haven't, you know, pushed Betamax out of the market. So, he flies up there and finds the space shuttle spinning out of control. We see inside of the shuttle, and basically the shuttle has lost all control. Like, the astronauts can't control it. Uh, But one of the astronauts, Connie... Uh, says that the trouble is one of the exterior modules. So she is going to do an EVA, an extravehicular activity, which we learned earlier, uh, to go fix it. Uh, They see outside of the window that green lantern is flying up to them. It's like, oh, well, maybe we have another option. Maybe he'll, you know, green lantern will help us out so you don't have to risk going out in an EVA. Because, I mean, sure, EVAs are kind of routine, but they're still very dangerous. You get unclipped, it's going to be a real gravity situation. If you've seen the Sandra Bullock film gravity um so john stewart uh uses his ring to make a vice grip to try to grab onto the space shuttle and stop it from spinning uh but he squeezes too tight and kind of busts some of the panels off which is bad for the structural integrity of the space shuttle so he puts a you know green lantern energy patch over it so it doesn't you know depressurize and kill all the astronauts inside and um, Connie doesn't trust that this Green Lantern is up to the task because obviously his first attempt failed, and so she's going to do the EVA anyways. And this entire time, John Stewart's kind of second-guessing himself. He's like, oh, no, look at what I've done. Like, I can't, this stuff is too complicated for me. I can handle bank robberies. I can handle falling bridges. I can handle kittens and trees. But this is, like, big stuff. Like, this is big time, and these astronauts could die if I don't if I don't do something. And he's kind of mad at the Guardians because they threw him into being Green Lantern with, like, no training at all. And so he's way out of his league on what his ring can do and and, uh, all the the way his ring can cause harm as well as good. Uh, So he attempts to uh, lasso it and just kind of basically pull it to a stop. 
Uh, this entire time, Connie has been getting outside of the shuttle, getting into an, an EVA sort of rig, and getting around to the side of the shuttle that has the module on it. Uh, and so while Green Lantern is lassoing it, uh, she's fixing the module, and inside one of the astronauts is saying that this, he's like, great Scott, is this man crazy? The stress he is putting this craft under, it'll tear us apart. And so Green Lantern is struggling and struggling because you got to concentrate. It's all about willpower to hold this, his construct in place against this. I mean, sure, things are weightless, but they still have inertia and momentum. So that's something that big moving at, at whatever speed it's moving at. It's going to take a bit to slow it down, especially in space where there's no purchase or leverage or anything. So basically, he's just got to fly in the other direction or stop. Uh, so his rope snaps. Uh, but luckily, as it snaps, Connie has fixed the module and uh, the controls, uh, the astronauts inside are able to level out uh, and stop the spin, uh, stop the, the dangerous flight of the shuttle. Um, and so Green Lantern says, they did it. Um, they did it without me. And he's like, oh, who am I kidding? They did it in spite of me. I got to make sure something like this doesn't ever happen again. And the place to do that is on Oa with the Guardians. So he flies to Oa, and he talks to the Guardians, and he says, I am, I am PO'd, all right? I could have killed some people because I don't know what I'm doing. And so please, can you just tell me who my successor was, or who my predecessor was, sorry, on Earth, so I can ask him for some tips and some pointers? So we're learning that Jon Stewart doesn't know that Hal Jordan used to be Green Lantern, but... Hal Jordan apparently knows that Jon Stewart was Green Lantern, or is Green Lantern. So that's interesting. And so the Guardians say, you're right. Uh, we're not going to tell you who your predecessor was, but you're right that you lack any training. Uh, so we are going to get you some training from... Uh, uh, the training should come from within the Corps, and thus we've selected one of our most honored members to guide you. Kat Matui, Green Lantern of Korrigar. And she says, greetings, John Student. Are you ready to get to work? Now, if you know anything about uh, John Stewart's history and his whole uh, thing is, uh, spoiler alerts for a comic that came out, uh, you know, almost 40 years ago, or a series of comics that came out almost 40 years ago, Cat uh, Matui is a, a very, very close and intense love interest for John Stewart. Um, and this is their first meeting, so that's very exciting. Isn't that exciting? Uh, and, I mean, she, Kat Matui, looks like a humanoid woman, uh, but she has pink skin, um, very similar to Sinestro, because they both come from Korrigar, um, and they are the same race of aliens. Uh, and that is the end of that story, but we get a little sort of exciting blurb. It says, next issue, Steve Englehart debuts, Joe Staten returns, the Green Lantern expose is what the next issue is going to be called. So that's exciting. We get a new, I mean, I know we just, we just got, you know, Paul, we, we just got to this comic, Paul Kupperberg and, you know, his writing and all his art, or Bill Willingham's art. But um, Steve Englehart's a very well-regarded uh, comic creator, and so it's exciting. New creative team, we're jumping on at a great time. I think any time you can jump on when a new creative team uh, starts, it's, it's easier because they make it easier to uh, not reference so much in the past and kind of create their own stories. But 
Now we'll just talk briefly about the backup story in uh, this issue. It involves the Green Lantern KT-21, who is a minor character in the um, Green Lantern mythos. She makes about a handful of, actually two, two handfuls of appearances, around 17-ish appearances in between uh, her creation, which is this issue, and uh, I guess the last time we see her, which is during Blackest Night, um, because she is dead. Uh, so we're just going to summarize it. We're not going to take the time to go beat by beat. Um, KT-12 is a uh, Green Lantern who juggles being a mom, being a, a glassblower, and her duties as Green Lantern, because at this time, Green Lanterns are allowed to have lives of their own. They're not sequestered or uh forced to stay on Oa or wherever the Green Lanterns are located at the time. Uh, they're allowed to be, you know, regular people outside of being space cops. Um, but uh, in, uh, a warlord invades her planet. Um, she uh, goes to the location where he's invading uh, when a group of thieves trap her in a yellow bubble. And this is the time still where yellow is the weakness of green lantern rings the color yellow just in general uh so she can't use her ring she escapes by blowing a bubble of red plastic glass uh popping you know popping the bubble um uh, she breaks free and captures the criminals and then she returns home to surprise her son with a bunch of plastic glasses of different colors it's a nice little story um, kind of showing other Green Lanterns and, and their lives and, and, and stuff. Because the Green Lanterns are a huge cast. It's an entire universe of different sectors, um, you know, because they're all sliced up, you know, 2814 and all these different sectors, and they all have their own Green Lanterns. So um, it's nice to get a little bit of a story of some of them, uh, the lesser talked about, the non-front and center Green Lanterns. Um, but, yeah. So that is the issue. That's Green Lantern number 187. Uh, and that is going to be it for this episode. I want to thank you for listening, taking the time. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I certainly know I did. I enjoy every episode, even if even if sometimes the comics are silly or bad. I, I still enjoy reading them and, and talking to you all about them. Um, but let's wrap things up. Uh, hit us up on social. Uh, give us a follow, give us some likes. I'm not begging for likes, that's crazy. I don't really care if you like that, you know, you actually click like. But we post a lot of stuff, we. I post a lot of stuff on Instagram, uh, part of the show. Comic covers, uh, primo panels. I need to start doing more primo panels for this show. I just forget. There's less uh, buck wild things that happen in these ones that uh, are sort of calling out for primo panels but I, I i need to get better about doing that for crisis and and golden age as well but you know i'm getting better um yeah and uh tell a friend about the show tell an enemy about the show force uh, hack into your enemy's phones and and download the show and force them to listen to it and then after you're done uh hack into their itunes and uh review the show as well because uh reviews and ratings help the show get out to other people and uh, spread the good word of the of our march through the annals of DC Comics, um, which I mean every podcast asks you to do that, so I understand if you don't. But uh, if you want to, that's cool too. 
Uh, but until next time, I'm your host, Nick Byers, and uh, see you later. Thank you.